We wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that this podcast is being recorded on, the Wajak people of Perth region. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past and present. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side and the truth. Come on girls, let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Don't look at a boy jumping there. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. Swear to Christ, ladies, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Wook Wook. G'day, welcome to The Last New Wave. I'm Andrew Pearce, and this is a podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. On this episode, I'm joined by new guest Ben Kuyerman from Down Under Flicks to discuss Henry Safran's 1976 classic, Storm Boy. It's a really fantastic film, and the discussion that we've got is really, really interesting as well, where we dive into the history of what Storm Boy was all about, what it meant in the era of the last new wave, or the Australian new wave. Uh, I keep on trying to insert myself into that history, um, as you'll hear at the end end of this episode, Um, and also talking about the history of David Gulpilil as well, Uh, specifically what his career was like uh, with Storm Boy and post-Storm Boy as well. I won't go into too much more. Usually I say a bunch about the history of this film, but we really dive into it in this long discussion. So let's have a quick listen to a short trailer and then we'll be back with the discussion on Storm Boy. Every year has its special film. This year, it's Storm Boy. <laughs> Colin Teeley's popular book is now a big screen experience. Galpalil is Fingerbone Bill. And Greg Rowe is Storm Boy. Storm Boy. This year's special film. Welcome back, everybody. I am joined by somebody who... um, I don't know if you actually know this, Ben, but when I started doing this show, there was two sort of websites which kind of encouraged me to uh, launch The Last New Wave. One is Matt Eel's website, which is cinemaaustralia.com.au, and the other is yours, which is downunderflix.com. So... uh, it's been great to actually uh, finally get you onto the show um, to discuss Australian cinema because your side is great. So um, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. And if you just want to tell everybody a little bit about who you are and, and uh, what your website is as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for having me on and thank you for the kind words. That's really appreciated. Um, you were actually, when I first joined Twitter, you were one of the first uh, recommends that came oh, wow. up. And so <laughs> I, I think probably around the time you discovered me, I also discovered you. So nice. Very nice. That's good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I run the site uh, Down Under Flicks. Uh, basically, it's devoted to shining a light on older Australian films and occasionally some newer ones. Uh, but could use a bit of love. So sometimes it's an obscure film that fell through the cracks when it was initially released and hasn't been seen by too many people. Uh, In other cases, it's a classic or a celebrated film that might have fallen into neglect over time. And so I guess what I look to do with each review is kind of wipe the coat of dust off of the film and uh, give a bit of an overview about... Uh, the film, the people involved in it, uh, provide some context when necessary, uh, sort of doing what you do with The Last New Wave, which is uh, trying to encourage people to check out Australian films and engage 
with what I think is a really special film industry, uh, a flawed industry in some respects, but a special one nonetheless. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, you know, I've been doing this, is, this will probably be about the 60th episode they've done in, uh, it's been going since the 1st of August last year, so 2016. Um, so about mm-hmm. 60 episodes discussing different films and, you know, quite a few of them have been interviews and stuff like that. And yeah, like we're not perfect. Australian cinema is not perfect, but it's got a real charm to it, which I think is is something that we don't really see all too much out there um, in different cinema, like, you know, British cinema. It's nice, but it doesn't have the same kind of um, gusto, I guess, that the Australian cinema does, um, which I absolutely love. And I noticed, uh, well, I read recently um, at the end of August, you did a triple feature review of... Um, Doc Goes to Hollywood, uh, Dogs in Space, and High Tide. Dogs in Space is one I'm going to cover eventually uh, in the future because it's a great film. Um, but it's kind of apt that uh, one of the, the latest films that you uh, covered is Doc Goes to Hollywood because uh, that's a kid's film uh, in some regards. Um, and the film yep. that we're going to be discussing is Storm Boy, uh, which is, you know, it's a it's a film which, uh, you know, off mic before... Um, I'd mentioned that, you know, it had been a very, very long time since I'd last saw it and probably when I was a teenager and it was a pretty devastating mm-hmm. film um, with the, you know, the, the sad stuff that occurs in it. And yeah. I always forgot that, you know, as a kid, like we watched it in primary school and stuff like that. Um, but I shot you through a list of, of films that uh, I'm, I'm aiming to cover on the show and stuff like that. And you yep. selected out a few of them and, and one of them that you'd selected was Storm Boy. So... Can I ask why this particular film? What, what interests you about Storm Boy? Well, to be perfectly honest, it's a film that I watched in bits and pieces over the years. Uh, you know, a few scenes here, a few scenes there, but I'd never actually watched it from start to finish. And so I wanted to take that opportunity uh, to watch a film from beginning to end. Uh, and when I actually watched it, I found that my idea of a film that had accumulated over the years wasn't quite as complete as I thought. Maybe I'd seen something like uh, 50 to 60% of the film over time, but I certainly didn't have that full picture. And so it was actually quite selfish of me to choose it. I just wanted to uh, have the opportunity of watching it. And, um, yeah, I'm so glad I chose that one because it does play beautifully it is a really well-made film and it all those pieces that i'd watched over the years fit so nicely together in one sitting yeah and i imagine probably for you coming to it it's a bit like i only watched citizen kane for the first time last year and which was a huge black spot for me and i guess in some regard like i'd seen five minutes here and there and i guess for those kinds of classic films you're a bit like well, I've seen about 30, 40% of it and people have talked about it enough that I kind of know what's going on. You know, it's almost as if I've seen the whole entire thing. But until you actually exactly, sit yeah. down and watch it, you're a bit like, all right, I was wrong. <laughs> this and you, is and you sort of... Oh, sorry. No, no, you go. It's all right. Yeah, feel free. Uh, I was just going to say, you, and you sort of take some films for granted when you watch them that way. Like when you watch them piecemeal over the years and you read a bit here, you read a bit there, um, you do really take those films for granted. And, um, I mean, certainly growing up, I wasn't a, a diehard fan of Australian cinema. You know, I, like many Australians, I liked the films that I liked. 
Uh, I was familiar with some of the classics. I sought out the films that tended to get a bit more heat than others. So I'm thinking films like Lantana and Rabbit Proof Fence and The Castle and all that sort of stuff. But there were a lot out there that I didn't seek out, uh, either because I wasn't aware of them or they just, I wasn't particularly interested. And unfortunately, Storm Boy was one that sort of fell into that category, uh, having seen it in bits and pieces and just knowing the gist of it. Uh, I never really actively sought it out. And so this podcast was a nice opportunity to remedy that. And I guess that's also part of what Down Under Flicks is all about. Mm. And I I imagine as well, probably um, because this film is being uh, remade at the moment, or I guess probably remade is not the right term because it's being adapted from Colin Tilly's book. Um, And it's being, you know, I... I do wonder how that's going to go, uh, being modernised and all that kind of stuff. So it's nice to have a, a refresher in a way before that launches, I assume, sometime in 2018 um, with uh, Jeffrey Rush, I think, is in it. Um, you know, I am, I'm still a bit unsure about it, only because the original mm-hmm. film is just such a, you know, it's such an interesting piece of Australian cinema and it's an interesting adaptation of a, of a great kids book. Have you ever read the book, um, or you, are you familiar with uh, Colin Tilly as a writer? I mean, I'm sure most of us are in Australia, but um, it's a question I should ask at least. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, I've actually never read uh, the book. Uh, it's something that I'm looking to remedy now, having seen the film. Are you familiar with the source text? Uh, I mean, I read it when uh, I was in primary school, and I did try and look okay. for it. Um, in preparation for the show, but it was not an easy fi- book to find. And unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to head to my local Dimmicks or anything like that to pick it up. But um, I do remember it being uh, a good book and certainly one that, you know, I one of the things which you come back to with this particular film is that it is it is a kid's film in some regards. Um, you know, it focuses on a, a young boy and who, of course, is the, the titular Storm Boy, uh, or as his, uh, his real name is Mike, uh, he's played by Greg Rowe, um, you know, and, and I guess, you know, the, in regards to Australian cinema and in the way that we deal with kids' films, um, this is kind of, uh, it feels very European, which, of course, it's directed by uh, somebody who's not Australian, which is Henry Safran. Um, and I find that really interesting that, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on it in a bit because this is one of the films that came out in the last new wave. Well, not in the last new wave, but in the new wave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I trip myself up with that with that regularly. Um, but it came out in the new yep. wave era, and of course, there were you know foreign directors coming across. Uh, Ted Kotcheff, in particular, to, uh, coming across for mm, yeah. Awake and Fright. So, I guess for you, um, do you find that you know having a foreigner coming and telling this particular story? Do you notice that? Uh, he's seeing Australia in a different light. Did you get that from this film? Because um, I certainly did. Uh, I guess to a degree. Um, you certainly did have a lot of that activity, uh, certainly in the period right before Storm Boy, when you had, as you say, Ted Kotcheff with uh, Wake and Fright and uh, Nicholas Rogue uh, mm. with Walkabout, also starring one of the stars of this film, David Gopalil. Um, and of course, uh, in the late sixties, you had Michael Powell with, uh, Bear a Weird Mob and Age of Consent. So you definitely did have that activity going on. And it is interesting when you put, um, Storm Boy alongside the other 
uh, as you say, the new wave films of that mid to late 70s period because it's there right in the thick of it. Uh, it came out in the aftermath of The Sunday Too Far Away and Picnic at Hanging Rock and Devil's Playground and sort of just around the corner you have Newsfront and Jimmy Blacksmith and uh, My Brilliant Career and all that sort of stuff. Um, and in some respects, Storm Boy fits quite nicely with that pack, but also because it is a kid's film and a family film, it is also a little bit removed from that crop as well. Mm. And it is an, it's, so it's sort of interesting the way that it straddles uh, that new wave period, uh, which I guess, as we know, did have a bit of a European inflection, but also sits outside it just by virtue of being a family entertainment. Yes, yeah, very much so, because that, that was quite a rarity in that particular period. Like, there's, besides the, you know, the dot films, which were kind of like the, the animated stuff, um, and they're, they're interesting films, but they're, I don't know if you call them classics at all. Um, I mean, it, it has been a very long time since I've seen them, uh, and, you know, I aim to cover them again on, in the future uh, on the show, but... I guess for you, somebody who's, who's recently watched one of the, the sort of entries into the Dot series, because there was a whole bunch of different Dot films, um, how does Storm Boy kind of compare to, uh, well, Dot Goes to Hollywood, which I guess is, I, di- I didn't see that one, um, but I guess that's kind of like Crocodile Dundee with Dot as the lead, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh, exactly, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, not wanting to do a disservice to uh, Yoram Gross, who obviously is a, a titan, I guess, in Australian kids' animation, but I just wasn't crazy about uh, Dot Goes to Hollywood, I'm sorry to say. Um, certainly compared to Storm Boy, which I did react to immediately. I mean, part of that, I think, is just uh, there's something dated about the Dot approach, and I think there's something a lot more timeless Mm-hmm. about Storm Boy. It doesn't have quite the same time stamp that something like the gross animations have. I was actually thinking about this, and I did a little bit of a Google search of Australian children's films. And you know how what happens when you go to Google, you type in <laughs> something, a whole lot of films come up. And I'd say that 66% of them had animals yep. in them. It's a motif. So obviously you've got your uh, Storm Boy, uh, you've got your Red Dog films, your Babe films, uh, your Happy Feet films, which I guess are maybe a little bit more transatlantic. Um, But then you've got things like the Dot, you know, Dot and the Kangaroo. You've got Oddball, Napoleon, Skippy, Blinky Bill. So there (laughs) is really, I mean, it is one of the things that Australian cinema, I guess, does well when it comes to kids' films, which is animal flicks yeah and you know i guess with the babe films as well like obviously from the mind of george miller they're they're a little bit darker and even the first babe film which wasn't directed by him but it was uh, at least written by him you know the, mm-hmm. the whole crux of that story is pretty dark in the sense that you know babe's siblings all get killed and you know and he goes off and herd sheep and stuff like that so it's really interesting that it, it skews to a darker aspect, whereas, you know, same with Storm Boy, it's got some really devastating things in it. You know, we can go into spoilers and stuff here, and, and hopefully, you know, people have seen Storm Boy. And if you haven't, um, 
well, you know, we haven't... Check it out. Yeah, yeah, it's only an hour and 25 minutes. We haven't leapt into spoilers just yet, uh, but we will do in about two seconds. When mentioned that, you know, at the end of the film, Mr. Percival, um, the penguin, uh, the pelican, not the penguin, uh, that we've essentially grown attached to, is shot dead, is killed. And, you know, his death is fortunately enough off screen, but it's... It's tragic. Like, to end this film on such a tragic, tragic moment uh, is really kind of like, I don't know, it's it's a bit audacious. And I do remember, I think that that particular event occurs in the book. So, you know, they're very faithful okay. in that regard. Um, but part of me is kind of like, you know, I really wish that after his moment of heroics where he helped save these uh, uh, somewhat foolish uh, sailors, these drunken sailors uh, in this storm, um, you know, I wish that it kind of left on that point. But I, I wonder, yeah, you know, I wonder for you and, you know, because for me, I found it really difficult for, for Sternboy himself is like, this is that learning moment for him. You know, he's going off to go to school and stuff like that after, after Mr. Percival's death. So he's got this whole growth pattern that he's going to be going ahead on. How did you feel about that? Like, how did you see his journey after this film? Do you think that he's going to be okay? I hope he's going to be okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, well, I mean, um, I suppose in terms of its genre, um, Stormboy is a rites of passage uh, narrative, uh, much along the lines of uh, Jasper Jones from mm. early this year, for instance. And with that rites of passage comes that look into those sort of darker blurrier corners that are on the periphery of childhood and those things come into focus uh the fact that yeah obviously um close companions whether they they be human or animal or pelican they pass away uh there's the growing realization that his father is a more complex figure than he ever realized and that there's a whole complex past there the realisation that there are people in the world without a moral compass who mm. won't hesitate to slay a bird for sport. And also on that periphery, the understanding of uh, David Goldblum's character and where he fits into society and the fact that he is somewhat uh, separated from his uh, tribe and culture, but also not quite in the sort of the white Kurong culture either. And so it's sort of fitting, I think, for that type of story. Um, But it is tough all the same because you do grow very attached to uh, Mr. Percival over the course of a film. And uh, I'm not what I would, I'm not what you'd call a pelican aficionado. (laughs) I never really uh, thought too much about them, to be honest. But uh, they make delightful uh, screen characters, just that. You know, the long beak, the large puffed-up throat and yep. the awkward waddle and the dead eyes, they're quite uh, interesting to watch on screen. Well, definitely. I mean, so I before uh, leaping into a career of, uh, well, this isn't a career really, but talking about films and stuff like that, I, I was a vet nurse for eight years and we dealt with a lot of uh, uh, avian creatures and stuff like that. And on more than one okay. occasion, I dealt with uh, pelicans and they are very stinky creatures, and you know, as you say, they have <laughs> they have dead eyes, and um, they are 
I don't know. There, there was some situations where, like, it's hard to think of these kinds of. They're kind of comical creatures because they've got that, that they are, huge yes. beak, and you know that flexible, uh, you know, bottom jaw and stuff like that, which which it kind of inflates like a balloon in some ways. But they are a predator because they do tend to eat, you know, all sorts of different things. You know, there was one situation where I saw um, a bunch of ducklings get eaten by a pelican, you know. And it's oh, my just goodness. Like, yeah. Wow. And, <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, that's not great. But, you know, with with that in mind, me coming to this film again after all these years and with, with all that on board, I could still see that there was a connection there. And, and one of the things I find really interesting is that this, you know, I understand that it was quite difficult for them to... Um, handle the pelicans because it's nobody had ever really trained a pelican before um but mm, yeah the, the thing is like they i don't know if they'd raised the the chicks that you see the like throughout the film um i don't think that they would be in what mr percival turned into but the film does a very good job of explaining and showing uh how imprinting how birds imprint on humans and that that core relationship between mr percival and uh mike is is important and it's powerful and you know it Mm. it certainly helps him in in a lot of ways that you know one of the things which i think is really fantastic about the film is it, it doesn't it doesn't spell things out for you it takes a very long time before we even find out a why uh mike and his dad are there and then b what actually happened to Mike's mum. And in some regards, like that, that's a, it's a great exploration of grief uh, in some ways, because it takes, you know, you get this, this coloring of, of who Mike is uh, as a person. And more importantly, uh, what Mike's dad is like as a person and, and how he deals with his life. Um, So I guess in some regards, like as a kid's film, um, it's spectacular that they managed to do that. And it's spectacular as well that this has become such an endearing classic for people. And, you know, I guess for some, for some reason, uh, it lives on, uh, in many, many ways. And, you know, I mentioned this on, on Facebook and, you know, a bunch of people had said, you know, this film devastated me. It, it ruined me. Mm -hmm. People continue to come back to it, which is great to see because I get a little bit annoyed when people say, Oh, Australian films are all doom and gloom and, uh, you know, all all negative and stuff like that. And Stormboy is kind of doom and gloom, but it's also very much, you know, it's the part of what that film is. It's the whole point of that film. Um, how did you feel yeah. about that? I'm just rambling on a little bit, so please feel free to interrupt me whenever. <laughs> oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, by all means. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is. Obviously, it has those uh, sad qualities to it. It has those tragic qualities, but there is a lot of spirit and there is a lot of spunk and joy to the film as well. And I think ultimately it is it is uplifting. And I think that uh, Mike or Storm Boy is, is going to be okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I found it a really positive film to watch. Mm. Um, but those those sort of darker hues are what makes it interesting. And I think they are what sort of links it to the films of that era. Um, and it's interesting because it is symptomatic of new wave films in a couple of respects. One is obviously the centrality of landscape and environment to that sort of wave of films. Mm. And if you look at, um, again, I've, 
sort of I'll kind of touch on a lot of the same films because they are very much a um, a holistic body. But if you look at Hanging Rock or Walkabout or Sunday Too Far Away, I mean the landscape is what sort of helped those films to stand out and help to differentiate it from other national cinemas. So even when you have films that do have a certain European inflection, uh, the Australian setting serves as a point of differentiation Mm -hmm. uh, in those films. And you certainly see that in uh, Storm Boy, which really displays the uh, the Coorong uh, area of South Australia, like, marvellously. It's uh, lovely to watch on screen. Yeah, it really is. And unfortunately, the version that I, I watched, uh, it wasn't the um, the restored version, but it still looked okay. lovely. It still looked beautiful. Uh, and I really wish that they would release like a Blu-ray version of this because I think, um, I know that the the um, National Film and Sound Archive in Australia is certainly uh, working hard at, at restoring these kinds of films, specifically Storm Boy. Um, they mm-hmm. also did Proof recently as well. And I know that it's, it's not a cheap in- endeavour. It's, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get these things done but I would love to see this film on a big screen uh, because I think that it would mm, be yeah. stunning um, and I guess you know one of the questions which I usually ask at the end of the, the podcast but we can leap into this now actually is yeah um, sure you know what do you think makes this film Australian and you kind of answered that question already in the sense that the connection to country the, the relationship that these these characters have with the land that they live on is pretty important, and it's certainly something. You know, as you're saying, it's a running theme of the films that were in the the new wave period. And you know, one of the other films that I can think of is very much, um, it, which sort of came near the end of the period, which was uh, Long Weekend, um, where essentially, of the, course, yeah, the landscape is fighting back and and is almost like a rejection of the the hunters that are in this film, and to say, you know, you've gone and caused all this uh, this trauma and and everything, and we're going to, you know devastate and and cause trauma to you um but yeah i guess uh, you know coming back to that question do you find that is it is just those that that connected that connection to country that is um you know the the relationship that shows that this is a a very australian film or what are what other aspects drive the australianness of storm boy uh well i mean there are a whole lot of uh qualities obviously the setting is a big part of that, uh, the flora and the fauna. Um, also interesting to note that, like many of those New Wave films, it was based on an existing literary source. And, I don't know, Australian filmmakers don't tend to raid the archives quite as much these days. I mean, you still get films that are adapted from uh, books, such as, uh, like I said earlier, Jasper Jones or Joe Cinque's Consolation, but... If you look back at the new period and the fact that the filmmakers were going for, uh, you know, Caddy and the getting of wisdom and, you know, pulling all these classics, you know, both old and new off the shelves, you don't get a lot of that uh, these days, but it certainly ties it to the films of that era. Um, little things like uh, the stoic uh, father figure, uh, that's very much an Australian staple. We saw a bit of a spin on that late last year, uh, mm. with Brian Brown's character in Red Dog True Blue, uh, another animal flick. Yes. <laughs> um, and, I mean, obviously a big one is uh, the David Gopalil character and uh, the link there to Indigenous culture. Yeah. So uh, 
we'll touch on the, the father figure for a moment um, because that certainly it feels to me like it was a, a bit of a, an undercurrent theme uh, of the, the films of the new wave period where they certainly were addressing um, masculinity in some regards. And, and I guess because it was that long period after World War Two where we didn't make films, there were, there were no Australian films made. And of course, that's what the new wave period is. But I think at that point, they were kind of addressing the, um, you know, the hopelessness and almost the the aimless nature of the Australian male. You know, they they had a very yeah. difficult time in, the, in World War Two, and then growing up and and trying to find their feet in the world in a country that was not that great, like in the sense that it wasn't uh, comforting or encouraging uh, growth and 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 harnessing people. Um, and I think, you know, films like this address it in some regard. You know, uh, Mike's dad is a very closed-off individual. I'm sure that uh, you and I and many of the listeners uh, from Australia would recognise um, the sort of man that he is, the, the quiet Australian figure who just kind of stands around and does stuff. And, you know, I think that I think that's what the most powerful thing is for me about this film is that through Mr. Percival, he finally gets a relationship with his son. He finally learns to start interacting with him other than just being like, we're going to go fishing and come home and eat and not really talk. Um, you know, and it's not like he starts as soon as the pelican appears, it's not like he starts, you know, spouting off, you know, life stories and stuff like that, but he certainly learns to interact a lot more. And, I think that's mostly through to through to the uh, the presence of the pelican to say that you know, all right, this is a, a a commonality that we have, and I can see that the boy is enjoying his uh, his relationship with this bird, and through that I can further something uh, with my own son, which I don't know if he even wants to do that, but it's uh, it's a testament to him as a person that he actually tries to. Uh, move forward and when he recognizes that you know the kid should actually go to school and especially when he's 10 years old and he can't read and write and it's those small little lessons of you know uh correcting the words that he uses and stuff like that which just improve their relationship that they have together Uh, so i thought that was really really fascinating and i think that's the quality of a great film as well is that you can watch it and go into it with different mentalities and take a whole bunch of different things from it and certainly with storm boy at least you know you, you can go into it and just watch that relationship and see how it how it progresses and certainly um you know mike has kind of almost two fathers in a way which is uh you know his real dad and of course uh david gulpalil's character as well um and i guess mm, yeah the way that they connect to each other um so how did you find the the father relationship was it uh an interesting uh narrative point for you it was, yeah, and um, uh, the actor, uh, uh, I may mispronounce his surname if I do, I apologise, but uh, Peter Cummins, uh, or Cummins, uh, is one of those great sort of Australian stalwart recognisable faces. Uh, you watch a bunch of films from the 70s and 80s and he's a, you know, he's a pretty recurring presence uh, in films of that period and he brings a certain... Uh, I don't know, I guess, quiet dignity to that role. Uh, It's not a showy performance. Um, He doesn't sort of do the sort of emotional lifting that uh, Goldpool does or 
or that Greg Rowe does, but it is a, a really nice performance. Um, and you do see him open up and warm uh, towards his son over the course of the film. And I think also that relationship between his character and Gopalur's character is a really nice one to see on film. It's not a relationship that we'd seen a whole lot prior uh, in Australian films. And I think in that respect, uh, Storm Boy, along with a few other films of that period, marked a bit of a turning point in seeing white and black actors and characters interacting on screen in really positive ways. Mm. I mean, it's it shouldn't be impressive to see that, you know, David Gulpilla is able to, uh, you know, speak in, in his Indigenous language there and sing as well in, in Indigenous language. see him do that in this film you know and especially at the time uh you know as you're saying he did walk about as well and and unfortunately probably uh going back before that i think probably the only other real time that um this kind of character had been portrayed would be in jedda but even in jedda that had you know some some problematic elements still a good film and it's still a very important film in australian history um yeah but certainly i don't think that you know, we're ever really presented with a character like like David Gopal's character here, who I think is just is just brilliant, and he delivers yeah. a really fantastic performance and just delivers so much uh, depth to this story in the sense that you know the uh, coming back to the the notion that there are two father figures. You know, you've got uh, as you're saying, you've got Peter Cummins' dad figure, and then you've got David Gopal's fingerbone, and both characters in some regard. Uh, have a connection to land. They have a connection to um, the the environment that they live in, and it's important for them both that you know it's a safe, harmonious place. And I think that's one of the interesting things is that we forget, uh, you know, certainly as we're progressed as a society, how important it is to have a connection to the land and you know a, a positive connection to the land and, and interact with it in a in a positive way and coming back to a film like uh long weekend or or more recently um killing ground as well which you know they're both films that that present the bush or the outback as being a terrifying thing and and i guess you know Wake mm-hmm. and fright is very much like that as well um and uh hanging rock of as course. well yeah yeah and Big time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I forgot about that. And even though you mentioned it a couple of times, I've it's been a long time since I've seen Hanging Rock, and I forget that mm-hmm. you know they, the 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 landscape essentially consumes those poor girls, and we don't see what happens to them, of course. Um, but I think that it's really important that we get to see this this connection to land, and especially for David Gopal's character. So, um, yeah, yeah. 
I also find it interesting as well that for the year that uh, the AFI Awards were running that year, um, David Goupil was the only person that was nominated as an actor in, uh, in Storm Boy. And uh, it was also really interesting that it only won one award, which is uh, the best film. Um, beating I, I, John's party. <laughs> I know. I noticed that too, and it's it's funny because um, I don't know. In recent years, when you think about uh, the Academy Awards and you see those films like Twelve Years a Slave or Spotlight that kind of get the Best Picture gong, but the bulk of the awards go to something like The Revenant or yeah. Mad Max Fury Road or Gravity, and it, it's very much a. It was that situation at the. Uh, AFI Awards that year, so it won Best Film, but um, I think Best Director went to uh, Bruce Beresford. Yes, yeah, you did. For yeah. Don's Party. Yeah. And and Best Actor, uh, did that go to John Hargraves for Don's Party, or did uh, it go to one of the other nominees? No, it went to um, John Melian for The Fourth Wish, which is a film I okay. haven't seen, um, uh, and John Hargraves wasn't even nominated. Um Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's fascinating to look back at what was nominated in this period, where especially, you know, Don's Party is such a classic film. And, yeah. you know, it's such an important film, too, in Australian history. And we kind of forget that this kind of thing occurred. And, you know, and a film like Mad Dog Morgan as well was nominated for Best Director. Uh, it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. But, you know, I guess nowadays people kind of look at that film as a bit of a joke in some regards. Um and it's also uh, Oz as well, yeah. uh, the Wizard of Oz uh, rock and roll musical. That also got a Best Director nomination that year as well. So yeah. it, it is actually quite, that is striking, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, but it's nice to see that David Gulpilil, uh got nominated for Best Actor because he's fantastic here. And, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm not, to, you know, going to toot uh, uh, the AFI awards, uh, you know, for being progressive or anything like that. But it is nice to see, <laughs> you know, in that period, it's really great to see. Um, for sure. Um, actually, I was actually thinking just in the lead up to, to doing this recording, I, I was thinking a bit about uh, Gulpilil and just obviously what a huge figure he is in Australian cinema and obviously he'd been launched with Walkabout a few years earlier and he'd done some TV and stuff in the years that followed but it was really that sort of one, two, three punch of Mad Dog Morgan and Storm Boy and The Last Wave that helped to sort of cement him as an icon and particularly Storm Boy which... um, I guess obviously Mad Dog Morgan, Last Wave, they're interesting films, quite idiosyncratic, but Storm Boy is a gentle mainstream family film and it had this powerful, compelling Indigenous actor uh, in a central role. And I think if you if you think about uh, Australian cinema and who you could take out of Australian cinema without changing anything and who if you took out took them out and it completely changed the landscape. I think that sorry, I'm getting a little bit uh getting a little bit muddled here. That's uh, all right. Let me yeah. let me try and rephrase that. <laughs> if I mean let's say hypothetically you took someone like Jack Thompson yeah. out of Australian cinema. Obviously that's a loss. Uh we'd miss out on some great performances. Uh John Waters might be happy because he'd get a bit more work out of it. 
just to clarify, the Australian John Waters, not the American John Waters. Uh, or if you took Peter Weir out, uh, you'd lose a rarefied talent and you'd lose some tremendous films. But again, I don't think the scene would change quite as much. But if you were to take David Gopal out of Australian cinema, then Australian cinema becomes such a very different thing. Mm. And obviously he brought that seat to the table for Aboriginal actors and Aboriginal characters. Uh, if you think to just 20 years earlier, the protagonist in Jeddah, uh, I've forgotten the performer's name, but her voice was dubbed by a white actress because they had doubts about using an Indigenous voice on film. And then 20 years later, you have Stormboy and you have this guy who is the whole package, you know, this actor who is funny and smart and incredibly confident and savvy and self-possessed and defiant of stereotype. And, I mean, if for nothing else, that makes Stormboy such a significant artefact mm. of Australian fin cinema because it is very much, I guess, in, in tandem with Walkabout it's the film that kind of launched this presence that is central to Australian cinema, this presence who, if you took them out, I think Australia's, Australian cinema looks really, really different without him. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and the actress's name is Rosalie Kunath-Monks, who portrayed Jeddah, and she's, she's okay, great in that yeah. film. Yeah, really, really fantastic. Um, the other thing that, as well, like David Gopal, um you know, one of his kind of, uh, I don't know if you call it career highlight, but his life highlight uh, was that he went and danced for the Queen, um, which was, you know, kind of a, a pretty impressive thing to be able to do, you know, for an Indigenous person yep. to go and show, you know, what their dancing is like uh, to essentially the head of state in some regards um, in Australia, which was fantastic. But what I think is really interesting, and I couldn't agree more with you about, you know, if you took him out, then uh, we'd be worse off. Um, but I find it really interesting as well to look at the narrative that David Gopal went through, you know, from the films like Walkabout and Stormboy, and then, you know, his work with Rolf Tahir, and specifically, mm -hmm. um, in I think his probably best performance, which is in Charlie's Country, which kind of yeah. addresses his his life in some regards, like... He had it all, and because of the society that he lives in, um, essentially he's he's lost that connection to country. He's lost who he is as a person, and it's really devastating in that film. It's a really uh, powerful, difficult film to watch, but um, it's certainly something that you know. I, I had the fortunate opportunity of interviewing Rolf Tahir earlier this year, and uh, he's oh, a nice. great guy. Yeah, really fantastic guy. And um, you know, I'd asked him about Charlie's Country, and he said, you know, it was a lot of it was to do with David Gopal. He had this story that he wanted to tell. And, you know, I was able to provide the voice for that particular story. And it was a difficult one to tell because, you know, I think, I think as we progressed, you know, uh, praise the AFI for being progressive a second ago uh, for nominating him, but we kind of feel like we've regressed in some regards. And I think his performance uh, in Storm Boy, where he has that strong connection to country, where he lives off the land, um, and you see him, you know, having a, a fine life uh, in some regards, you know, he's, he is, you know, certainly he's been uh, uh, sort of uh, kicked out of his tribe for, for doing something mm -hmm. wrong, and he can't go back, otherwise he will uh, face tribal law, um, which is a, it's a terrible thing to see for sure. 
but he's still able to have that connection to his land. And then you flash forward to Charlie's country and, you know, where he, he goes to have a walkabout and the police essentially rein him in and say, you can't do that anymore. You're not allowed to walk around with a spear. You can't do that kind of thing uh, in society anymore. And it's, it's kind of sad to see that progression, but, um, you know, it's yeah. also interesting for him as an actor that he's gone from that uh, this point in Stormboy to Charlie's Country, and he's a he's a powerful uh, powerful presence. And I think he actually won um, a award at Cannes for uh, his performance in Charlie's Country. I can't recall exactly, but I think uh, he did too. Yeah, yeah, it's well deserving. And you know, obviously, it's uh, it's not a kids' film, but um, <laughs> no, a is, long way from Stormboy. Yeah. yeah, it's a long way from Stormboy. But yeah, coming back to what you're saying, I think if we took him out of the uh, the Australian history it would be uh, would be much worse off, and you know he's fantastic. He's he's one of a kind, and we're very lucky to see him. Um, so in that regard, I think you know all three actors are really brilliant, and you know it's interesting. Like the, I know uh, sort of sometimes people would be like, oh, this is very testosterone heavy film and stuff like that, but it doesn't matter in this film because the absence of a mother of figure in this film is, is part of the whole entire point of who Mike is as a person and how he grows up in life. And, and I think that makes it a, a quite an interesting story in some regards. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that point, but you know, I, I, I do mm-hmm. find it a really interesting film uh, and, and very powerful. Um, do, what else do you have to add about this film? What, what, what kind of uh, tickled your mind grapes in some regard that you were like that, encourage some some thoughts about uh storm boy <laughs> <laughs> well um yeah um i think that that sort of aspect of it um and i hadn't really sort of thought about it until you brought it up which is that i mean i obviously the the two fathers aspect is is evident but also the two fathers caring not just for the boy but for the land as well i think you know in retrospect that is a really big part of the film and uh like i said i think that gopal's presence obviously brings that indigenous connection to the land uh to the film um i mean not only did he as an actor bring that seat to the table for indigenous actors but also for filmmakers to basically connect with and you know represent indigenous culture on film um and I, th- I guess if you look at Storm Boy and uh, The Last Wave, there is an aspect of the exotic and the novel uh, about that, but still it's very rewarding to see it, to see those seeds planted in these films. Mm. Um, we sort of haven't really touched on uh, Greg Rowe a whole lot, but I mean, I think he gives a, a wonderful performance. Oh, yes, uh, definitely. In the film. Yeah. It's a. Uh, a very unaffected uh, child performance. And I think that's always the best type of uh, child performance where you don't see a lot of uh, craft in it, I guess. Well, I think in some regard, you don't see a lot of, um, you know, uh, yeah, the, the craft and essentially the, the, the handling from a director off screen and, and things like that. And, you know, it's, I feel really bad actually, because in my, in all the notes that I wrote down, I did not write much about him as an actor, because, but I think that's probably more because he's so good in this film and he embodies yeah, his character is. perfectly. Yeah, yeah, it is sort of... Um, I mean, it's 
to some extent, it's uh, almost sort of invisible acting. It is so so natural. Um, scenes where he's, for instance, when he goes to the school and he's observing all the kids, uh, you know, who are playing and interacting, and he's on the other side of a fence and he's sort of segregated from them. It's a really touching moment, and it's not uh, it's not overplayed mm. uh, either by him or by the filmmakers. Um, and I think that sort of underplaying of things is really it it what it's it helps give a film that's um, I don't know I guess a, a um, it's almost a laid back flavor yeah, I, yeah. And, I mean obviously that is something you see in a lot of Australian films that kind of laconic approach to things um, but I think it really complements uh, the material nicely here. I, I really like that shot of him next to the school, actually, because it's juxtaposed um, with the shot that comes before it of Mr. Percival flying in the air, and he's surrounded by a whole bunch of, uh, basically, I don't know what breed of bird they are, but they're not pelicans. And, <laughs> you know, and essentially, you know, you have this feeling that he is this unique bird in this unique situation. And he's surrounded by these unfamiliar birds. And he, you know, obviously we can't read into his mind or anything like that, but he does feel like, you know, a lost soul in the wind. And then we cut to uh, Mike essentially walking to the school. He's, he's run away from uh, home in some regards. Um, and, you know, he's gone to school and he's, he's exactly the same. He's uh, this lost soul in the wind. And essentially he sees all these kids being kids and... Uh, you know, he's, that's not who he is. I mean, he's not even wearing shoes and he's, you know, covered in sand and all this kind of stuff. And I think one of the, I was, I, I had, did not remember him having interactions with kids at all, uh, in the film. And I'm, I was a bit afraid that, um, there would be the possibility that, you know, the kids would see him and then start bullying him. And I was like, Oh, I really hope that that doesn't happen. And fortunately enough, it doesn't, mm. um, because yeah. I think it would just been like, a little bit too much, but, um, you know, it was nice to see that. But in that moment, you just, you just feel your heart breaking for this poor guy. And, you know, he's, he's just superb here and he embodies something which is rarely seen and probably a, a bit like, um, Henry Thomas in, uh, ET as well. Like he's, he's got to do a lot of acting with, um, essentially somebody who, you know, is a inanimate object in some regards, or not a human. Um, and, yeah. You know, it's got to be difficult to be able to have that kind of relationship and that interaction with somebody who, you know, can't talk back to you at all, and really all they want is a fish. Um, and, you know, it's, I don't know, it's it's got to be difficult. And unfortunately, having a look at his uh, IMDb page, it doesn't look like he did much after... Um, after Stormboy, he did The Last Wave, which is a great film if people haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also in Blue Finn. Uh, looks like he was a co-lead in that. and Which was another Colin Teeley adaptation? Yeah, and I haven't read that one, and I really should. Um, and, you know, it certainly looks like an interesting film. I actually haven't seen that uh, as well, which is... Uh... No, me neither. It's something <laughs> should probably uh, remedy that. Yes, yeah, definitely. Um so it's kind of sad that, you know, this great talent, uh, he he didn't do much after the 80s at all. Uh, well, according to IMDb, he didn't do anything at all, and I'm not sure what his career was. But I do know that sometimes with, uh, 
you know, child actors that they they luck into giving some great performances, and then as they make the transition to uh, being adult actors, it doesn't always work. Maybe he Haley Joel Osmond. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and also uh, actually, you know, bring back Steven Spielberg for a moment. But the kid in Close Encounters as well. He went off to uh, go and do something completely different, um, other than continuing acting. Um, okay, right. Yeah, which is it's both sad to see, but it's also kind of like it's nice in a way to know that uh, they're able to go on and have you know normal lives in some regard. Um, but I'm As glad. did uh, Mr. Percival. Actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did a little bit of reading, and uh, uh, I'm actually uh, I'm sort of living in Sydney at the moment, but I previously lived in uh, Adelaide, and uh, Mr. Percival, it turned out, was a resident at uh, Adelaide Zoo in his uh, twilight years, and uh, he died 2009 at yeah. the age of 33. Which is a great age. Like it's a, yeah. it's it's a stunning age for a pelican. I mean, I don't know if we know how how long pelicans usually live for, but you know, the mere fact that he was he actually uh, had a good life uh, at a nice zoo is uh, is great to see. Uh, did you ever go to the Adelaide Zoo and see him, or did you recognise um, that that was? I did. Was there? I did go to the Adelaide Zoo and I saw pelicans, but uh, I don't recall any attention being shone on the fact that uh, Mr. Percival was part of the, uh, uh, part of the, oh, what's the word? Um, display. That's sure. probably the wrong <laughs> word. But uh, I didn't, re- I, no, I didn't never realise that. I don't know, maybe he was uh, in witness protection or something, you know, oh. hiding in plain sight. I'm not too sure. <laughs> I was um, going to say, maybe got sick of all the paparazzi and stuff like that, you know. Yes, I, I, I am him from Stormboy. I... I wish to no longer uh, be the centre of attention, please. <laughs> I just want to and that, and that, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, I will just say, um, while I like that a lot of the a lot of the story is relatively grounded, but um, the film does go a little bit skippy at the end, mm. uh, where Mister Percival is trusted with a rope that will uh, help save human lives and uh, bring them back to shore safely. I'm not sure if I would trust. Uh, a bird, you know, with rope to save human lives. I w- I'm not sure I would actually trust that rope. Like, <laughs> it kind of, I, I, you know, I know that they they've got to uh, try and showcase uh, stuff as as well as possible. But that that rope looked uh, uh, very thin and very thin, flimsy as well. And and I was just a bit like, you know, I saw those guys littering before. I'm not so sure if I, I would go to. Uh, the great effort of, uh, you know, trying to rescue them and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not saying I would let them die, mm. but I'm just like, I don't know if I would also send out that short, small rope as well. But, um, you know... I, oh, well. I, <laughs> suspension of disbelief, I guess. Well, that's it. That's it. It's one of the key things with cinema is that, you know, the suspension of disbelief has got to be there and uh, we've got to accept these kinds of things. But, yeah, I do, I do think that, you know... Stormboy at least does have the um, uh, certainly uh, the strong ability to be very close to Skippy, and fortunately enough, it doesn't go down that whole you know what's up Skippy, you know what's going on over there kind of thing, and that that um, kind of irritating kid with the uh, stuffed kangaroo um, aesthetic. Mm. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no slight on Skippy, but you know that's well, yeah. 
it's not aged well. I, I watched a documentary about Skippy last year, and okay, um, it was uh, yeah, it's interesting to say the least. But um, I do find that that Skippy is quite interesting in regards to um, kind of like an Australian response to the uh, like um, the Lassie TV shows. And all yeah, that, Lassie. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. It. I was thinking Rin Tin Tin and and stuff like that. Okay, yeah. Um, that kind of relationship of young boy and, and animal of some regards. And, and, you know, it's probably being a little bit uh, too optimistic to think that kangaroos are the Australia's version of dogs. Um, they're not, <laughs> they're not that not easy. quite as domesticated. No. <laughs> and, uh, but nor is a pelican either um, at all. Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, but um, sorry, I'll just, um, yeah, go it just it. sort of occurred to me that, um, there is that interesting symbolism in, in uh, just to backtrack to the scene where you were talking about Mike being at the school and on his own and Mr. Percival sort of flying around in the mm. wind on his own. They are both uh, marvellous creatures. Oh, uh, yes. They both uh, are missing their mums at the start of a the film. They're both raised by these, uh, well, in... in Mike's case, obviously, his real father figure. In uh, Mr. Percival's case, a surrogate father slash brother figure. So that actually hadn't occurred to me either. So that's a really nice little bit of uh, symbolism there. That sort of parallel between those two, um, not quite orphan characters, but those two characters who are missing their mums. And you know what? It's it's so impressive that it. You know, it, it takes this long to kind of not dawn on us, but in, in the sense that it it takes this long to go, oh, yeah, of course, I see that now. Because too often, I think, with kids' films, um, or certainly, you know, even just kids' films, but, uh, you know, other films as well, is that they, they try and hammer that point home in a lot of regards, you know. He, they're both they both are essentially motherless kids, and, you know, they're, mm. they're both trying to live in life. And, and off, so often films are just like... Did you get that? Did you understand what we were trying to get? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if that I wonder if that sort of I mean obviously that speaks partly to the fact that it is a rich a rich text and that there's a lot uh, going on, but I also wonder if if part of that kind of stems from the fact that it is based on a literary source mm. and hence it's sort of based on a piece of material where that sort of thing is threaded through the narrative and is laid in a little bit more than, you know, you would find in a standard film. And that's not to obviously compare, you know, books and, and films, you know, one in a negative light to the other. But I do wonder if that, if there's that texture there in the source book that just translates in a very unimposing way to the screen. Well, yeah, I I wonder as well. And I'm, I'm going to go back and reread the book because it's only 60 pages long, so it's not a uh, tiresome read or anything like that. But I'm really curious to see what, what is in there uh, that, you know, they're able to draw on. Um, speaking about Henry Saffron as a director, and as I was saying, he's yeah. not uh, an uh, Australian director, but he's an international director, and he kind of found home in some regards um, with making Australian films. And certainly uh, in 1983, he made um, a film called Bush Christmas, which is one I'm really curious about watching because it's actually Nicole Kidman's uh, screen debut. And that's a... Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, it looks terrible, but, um, you know, I'm certainly <laughs> I'm certainly curious about it. But that's a remake of a... Uh, I think it's a 1950s film called Bush Christmas as well. Okay. Um, 
and then in the subsequent year after that, in 1984, he adapted The Wild Duck, um, which, of course, uh, if people have paid attention to Australian cinema, um, also got adapted uh, into The Daughter. Um, yes, you're right. Last year. Um, I'm really interested to watch that, too, because... You know, he went from Bush Christmas and then did The Wild Duck, which has got Liv Ullman and Jeremy Irons in it as well. So, uh, and I think it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's an Australian film or not. It's its hard to tell, but um, it's okay. certainly going to be interesting uh, to see how he manages to uh, adapt something that is very, um, uh, yeah, it does look like it's Australian. Um, it, it filmed in New South Wales, actually. Um, I should right. check these beforehand, but nonetheless... Um, yeah. So I'm curious to see how he adapts a, you know, a decades-old text uh, by Henry Gibson um, compared to something by Colin Tealy. Because uh, if he's done it with the the, you know, the ability that he did with Stormboy, then it would be really quite interesting, quite good. Um, I'd be very curious too. And and I mean, Stormboy is the only film of his that I I have seen to to the best of my knowledge. But I mean, based on it, I mean. He is a great director. I mean, it's a really beautifully made film. And it, it's, um, again, when you put Storm Boy in the, uh, in the pool with all the other uh, new wave films of its era, so if you put it alongside Jimmy Back's Blacksmith and My Brilliant Career and Hanging Rock and all that sort of stuff, I mean, I think probably one of the things that makes it uh, the Outsider is a fact that we don't really attach a lot of uh, uh, gravitas mm. or, or prestige to, to him as a director the same way we would attach it to a Peter Weir or a Fred Chapizzi or a, uh, or a Beresford or an Armstrong. And it's, and it's a shame. I mean, it could be that uh, Storm Boy is his career peak and that it's more of a plateau or a downhill trajectory from there, but... Um, I'd be really interested to see more of his stuff because based on the evidence of Stormboy, we have a really skilled, sensitive director who gets great performances out of children and animals, and that's not easy. No, not at all, especially um, Pelicans. You know, it's uh, it's fascinating to see that he was able to do that. And I, I do find it interesting as well that in Australia we did, you know, we have become kind of a place for for international directors to come and, and, you know, plant a flag here. And, you know, Rolf here we often consider as being a very Australian director, and he is very Australian. He's only really ever made Australian films. He did make one American film, um, which is a great film. Um, uh, the, the Old, the old man, man Who Read... Yeah, wonderful yeah. film. Yeah. Who Read Love Stories. Yeah, yeah really, really fantastic film. Um, but... You know, we often forget that he's actually not Australian. <laughs> and uh, Paul Cox as well. Yeah. Uh, the late Paul Cox, uh, another career, another director who, I mean, made, I mean, what seemed like a film a year, just sort of cranked them out for uh, several decades. Mm. Um, and who brought a very European sensibility to uh, Australian cinema and whose films are quite unlike uh, anything else being made by other filmmakers over here. Oh, definitely. And I wonder if that's, you know, something that occurs in Australia and that, yes, we may not have the budgets for, you know, multi-million dollar films or anything like that, um, but we kind of do afford the opportunity to be a little bit freer uh, with narrative and with themes and, 
and certainly with stories um, than your, your bigger budget films would allow. Because, of course, with your bigger budget film, you really need to make sure that you, you get all that money back at the box office. So you've got to try and hit you know, the four quadrants and all that kind of stuff. Whereas for a lower budget film, uh, of course, um, you know, it is important to make money, but it's also, it's a little bit, uh, not easier, but it, it, you know, the risk is not as much. Obviously, for, for people who are making independent films, it's it's quite a bit, uh, who are putting films on the credit cards and all that kind of stuff. But um, I don't know, I feel that there's that little bit more of a opportunity to be able to push these kinds of stories that, you know, aren't aren't your your typical uh kids films or anything like that and i guess for me you know coming back to what i was saying before you know being a kid film that that does uh have that that sort of darker element to it for me growing up whenever i watched those kids films that had those darker elements and obviously uh gremlins is a huge difference from storm boy um you know the creatures, <laughs> creatures in that film are very very different but you uh don't feed mr percival after midnight no you do not <laughs> otherwise you get no. uh, a beach full of pelicans <laughs> um <laughs> but i i think you know the the scene in that film that sticks for me is when phoebe kate's character is talking about the death of her father and that has no thematic uh impact to, for the rest of the story but it's such a dark moment in essentially a kid's film um that mm. really sticks with me and you know, I think, you know, Stormboy doesn't have that kind of moment, but it does have darker scenes in it. And for me, I think that, you know, kids' films that have that kind of element uh, stick in your memory a lot more, and, and certainly it teaches kids a lot. And not saying that, that films need to be a, a lesson for kids to learn from, but, um, uh, you know, we do gain a lot from cinema, and hopefully um, hopefully that, 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 you know, informs uh, people as they grow up and it's important. Do you find that as well with uh, kids' films? I, I don't know how many uh, kids' films you usually uh, you usually watch, but um, you know, maybe not as ones. many as not as many as I used to. No, um, <laughs> as you've grown up, you've been uh, less inclined to uh, head along to go and see uh, trolls and storks and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, I will say that the films, that the kids' films that do stick with me, are the ones that did have a little bit more meat on the bone and that did have a little bit more texture and did have those hints of, I guess, the darkness of, uh, well, <laughs> sounds very bleak when I say the darkness of adulthood, mm-hmm. but it, it, you know, hinted at, uh, I guess, the challenges that, you know, are on the periphery of um, childhood. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's something that Stormboy does really well. And in, in retrospect, I'm sorry that I only saw it sort of in bits and pieces piecemeal over the years. It's one that I would have loved to have watched from start to finish growing up, one I would have, uh, you know, loved to have in rotation. Then again, maybe I'm saying that as an adult and maybe as a kid it might not have worked for me. I'm I'm not really sure. Um, I'd be curious to, to know how Stormboy does work on, on kids these days. I guess we'll find out uh, next year when the remake comes out whether it resonates with uh audiences but i'm also interested how this one would play well definitely i know um my cousin who uh commented on my facebook post mentioned that his son is going to be watching it next week so oh lovely i'm curious to find out and he's about the same age as um as mike is in this film so i'm curious to see um what his reaction is to it as well and and how he feels about it and 
you know, I think that's the thing is that young kids nowadays, uh, when they watch older films, they're like, ah, oh, this looks so old and stuff like that. And hopefully, you know, they're, they're receptive to, uh, you know, older cinema and things like that because, you know, I feel that this is a pretty timeless film. Um, it is. And, and I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, we, we, I guess, you know, it's easy to talk about Storm Boy 2018 as a remake, <laughs> but it is, it is technically an adaptation of the same piece of source material. And, and I mean, hopefully it finds new things to pull out of a story and hopefully it delivers a similarly uh, classical feeling story. I mean, I think if you look at, uh, again, Jasper Jones or if you look at uh, December Boys, I think Australia can produce very classical, timeless feeling uh, kids films or, I mean, in Jasper Jones's case, something that maybe skews a bit more towards teens. But I think we definitely it's part of the uh, toolbox. Mm. I think it's something we do well. I, I really liked as well uh, a few years ago, Paper Planes, which I thought was a fantastic film. And that dealt with... Okay, I ne- some... never saw that one. I, I highly recommend seeing it because, um, you know, I think uh, it was also Michael Dennison's... Uh, not Michael Dennison's, Julian Dennison's uh, first film as well, who, if you've seen Hunt for the Wilder People, he's the, the lead kid. Ah, yeah. Yeah, he's, okay. he's really nice. good in it. Um but Sam Worthington is in it as well. And, you know, I think that uh, obviously people tend to poo-poo Sam Worthington as an actor. Um, but in Australia, at least, we are familiar with his work from Somersault and, for me, at least, uh, Paper Planes. And he gives a really great performance there. And it's uh, it deals with some pretty adult stuff too as well, which I think for a G-rated kids film is pretty impressive. Um, okay. And, and funny that you mentioned Worthington because uh, I guess his... Uh current equivalent uh jai <laughs> courtney is in uh will be in storm boy and uh i mean similar to uh to worthington if you've ever seen a film called felony yep. uh, but courtney was in a few years ago he gives a terrific performance um and i think there's a bit more going on uh with that guy than a lot of people think I, I couldn't agree more and i'm kind of disappointed as well because uh, going off track for two seconds but um at the end of last year, beginning of this year, he was originally scheduled to do a performance of Off Mice and Men with Gary Sweet uh, in Perth. Oh, wow. Yeah, which would have been really fascinating and interesting. But unfortunately, the theatre company uh, ran out of money and that performance couldn't go ahead. Um, but I was dying to see it because I was really curious to see how uh, Jai Courtney would handle Off Mice and Men. Uh, it would have been really fascinating, um, to say the least. But... Um, it would be, yeah. And and I guess, uh, I mean, with Courtney, uh, let me see what I'm trying to say. Um, okay, so an actor's voice is a huge part of their toolbox. And when an actor has to do an accent, uh, in particular the sort of neutral transatlantic accent that a lot of Australians have to adopt in American films, that can be a handicap and that can alter the whole nature of the actor's performance. And some actors can roll with it, and some don't roll with it quite as well. Um, I think Courtney's one of those guys that maybe can't roll with that uh, quite as well, and the same with Worthington. And, I mean, in some respects, you could uh, use that uh, to disservice them and sort of hold that up as a shortcoming. But 
I also think that when you have an actor who is using his own voice or her own voice and is completely in command of that instrument, they can do a lot better work. And, and I, I hope that in uh, Jai Courtney's uh, Hideaway Tom, we see a little bit of that going on. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. And I'm curious to see what he'll do. Um, so I guess we'll probably wrap up about this film, uh, you know, because we've been yeah. talking quite a bit about it. And it's a great film that we can talk for a long while about it. Um, but before I do wrap up, is there anything that you want to mention about the film that we haven't discussed that, uh, you know, is on your, your notes or anything there? Uh, no, no, I think we've kind of, uh, we've mined the territory, uh, <laughs> really well. I mean, I'll just, yeah, reiterate that it was a really lovely film to watch and I'm grateful that I, uh, had the opportunity to revisit it. Uh, it's one of many Australian films that I've watched recently as, as part, you know, most of them, uh, as part of the work I do on Down Under Flicks and it's always rewarding when you come across a gem. I mean, sometimes... Uh, you come across films that are maybe rougher diamonds. Um, but this was, uh, yeah, this was a lovely experience. And I'm also really grateful to have had an opportunity to talk about it uh, yeah. with you. Yeah, which is good. I'm, I'm really grateful that you, you joined me as well to discuss it because, um, you know, one of the things, uh, we'll, you know, carry on for just a second, but I, you know, I find that it's really interesting. I usually uh, get international guests on to discuss the films, um, but uh, now I've got a new job, it's a bit difficult to schedule that in with timing and stuff like that. Um, okay. So I found that, um, you know, talking to Australian guests has been even more illuminating than talking to the international guests because we all have different perspectives that we come to films with. And, uh, you know, seeing... Um, Australian uh, viewers come to films that they may not have seen before, like uh, You Were Stormboy and and other films that you know they may have had an experience with or something like that is uh, is still fascinating. And hearing people talk about uh, different aspects of Australian cinema is always always great and always interesting for me, at least. Um, so one of the questions which I usually ask people is. Um, you know, is this a film that you would recommend people seek out? And if so, what kind of advice would you give people uh, before heading into to Stormboy? Um, I would absolutely recommend that people uh, check it out, uh, for sure, um, in terms of how I would frame it. Um, I guess it sort of depends who I'm talking to. Um, but if we're just going to treat... If we're going to treat the audience as a sort of amorphous blob without any <laughs> clear identifiers. Um, I'd say that it's a, a lovely Australian film from the 1970s, that it holds up really well today, that it's a terrific uh, rites of passage and shows uh, a young uh, child protagonist's initiation, not necessarily into adulthood, but into uh, uh, the maybe the uh, uh, more mature terrain um that the uh pelican sidekick is absolutely delightful uh to watch uh yeah really just positive all around and of course uh uh it contains a wonderful turn from uh Gopal, who like i said you take that guy out of australian cinema i don't know what australian cinema looks like yeah yeah i agree <laughs> um and i think uh i don't know if i'd mentioned this beforehand um 
But usually I'd ask as well, is there a sort of, is there a film that you recommend people would seek out that's similar to Stormboy? Um, I might be putting on the spot. I, I'm, I can't recall if I'd, I'd mentioned that it's something that I usually ask people or not, but um, yeah. Is there, is there anything that springs to mind? Uh, yeah, I would, I would actually say, uh, I mentioned it earlier in the episode, uh, Red Dog True Blue oh, is yeah. a nice, uh, companion piece. Um, I'm a huge fan of the original Red Dog. It's like one of my favorite Australian films of the last decade or so. Um, and I know that this uh, second film got a little bit of a lukewarm rap, but I think it's, uh, like Storm Boy, it's a really nice classical coming-of-age story uh, with a canine companion instead of a pelican companion. Uh, like I said earlier, it contains a nice sort of uh, father-son, or at least in this case, grandfather-son relationship. So Brian Brown in a really nice, quiet, stoic performance, quite like Peter Cummins mm. in uh, Storm Boy. Um, yeah, it's a, a really good film, highly recommend it, and yeah, highly recommend Storm Boy as well. Yeah, and selfishly, I I also recommend uh, Red Dog True Blue because it was made in WA, and that's always hey, nice. Gotta <laughs> fly that flag. That's it. Yeah, and it was kind of creepy as well because when I watched it, um, uh, for people who haven't seen it, the the opening of the film actually um, has Jason Isaacs going and watching a film. I won't say what the yep. film is, um, but he's <laughs> going to watch a film uh, in the cinema and. I found out afterwards that the, the cinema that I was watching in uh, was the cinema that they, they filmed that particular moment in. I was a bit like, okay, that was a bit creepy. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, inception moment. That, that's it, yeah. It was, uh, it was suitably creepy, but it was, uh, it was good, yeah. So I do recommend seeing, uh, seeking it out as well. And, and certainly for nice. Chris Stenders, who is a very, very director, and he's got a new film coming out soon, which I'm quite curious to watch. Uh, um, but, yeah, he's... He's all over the shop and very interesting. And, and in fact, uh, it's a good segue because um, you recently uh, reviewed a couple of his films as well. It's the Illustrated Family Doctor and Lucky Country. Uh, I'm a huge did, fan yes. of The Illustrated Family Doctor. I love that film. Um, mm -hmm. But where can people find those reviews and how to follow you on social media as well? Okay, uh, so they can find those reviews at Down Under Flicks, so www.downunderflix.com. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm also called Down Under Flicks on Twitter. I can't actually remember. Yeah, let's say, yeah, sure, I'm <laughs> at Down Under Flicks. You uh, are, so you down, are. <laughs> oh, good, thank you for checking. Uh, down under F-L-I-X. Uh, like I said earlier, this is my first uh, podcast appearance, so I don't quite have the uh, promotional banter down pat yet, but maybe <laughs> by next time I will. Well, definitely. And look, after this, uh, you've, you've, you've made a great uh, debut on podcasting and stuff like that. So thank you. Know, you. I really appreciate it um, that you're coming along to, to talk about this film. And certainly, you know, I will be tapping you on the shoulder again in the future to discuss uh, more Australian films because... You know, as I mentioned, like I really enjoy your site. I enjoy what how you write up about the films and stuff like that. And um, you know, it's it's great to see Australian cinema being discussed in this regard. You know, it's it's fantastic to see it being um, explored in all its uh, variations, which is great. It's it's what I like. <laughs> oh, thank you, and uh, and likewise. I mean, I think that you're doing uh, terrific stuff with uh, the site and and the the podcast, and I think we're sort of uh, in the midst of a really nice 
a revival of interest in Australian film industry, thanks to, uh, I'm not going to say the stuff we do, we play a very small part in it, but, uh, you know, thanks to uh, Ausflix and uh, different things like that, different initiatives. So it's a nice time to be writing and podcasting about this stuff. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, not to pat our backs too much, but I do think, <laughs> I do think that, you know, the the you know, the discussions, not just us, but, you know, The Guardian is certainly, uh, with Luke Buckmaster, has been pushing a lot more yes, Australian yes. stuff too. Um, so it's nice to see that that kind of thing is occurring. And, and same with Umbrella Entertainment. They're really pushing out uh, a whole bunch of really great uh, older Australian films too, which is superb. It's what we like to see. I, I like yeah. it as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, Umbrella was uh, uh, kind of a, the thing that sort of uh, allowed me to see so many of uh, the classic Australian films when I did start to dig my heels in and uh, explore explore this whole uh, body of cinema. And I mean, uh, for me, the catalyst was seeing not quite Hollywood and mm. wanting to see all those exploitation films. And so you check out Road Games, you check out uh, Long Weekend, and then... Once those dry up, you want to look at the films that were happening alongside them. So you go from Long Weekend to uh, Hoodwink or uh, another John Hargraves film, and then that leads you to different corners of a new wave, to uh, different corners of the uh, the Ocker uh, tradition. And, and yeah, Umbrella was uh, like uh, my provider. You know, yeah. it kept me in stock <laughs> for a, a good stretch of time. Um, so yeah. Really good work being done out there. Oh, definitely. Long time ago, all the men were animals. First Kunai man was a pelican. He came long way, long, long way from the hills, carry a bar canoe. On his head. And he goes and he goes and he goes and he goes and he goes. He tuck, tuck, tuck. Sound like knocking. Looks here. Looks there. Where's the tuck, tuck coming from? Comes to a river. Put on the canoe. What's inside? Mustak. Mustak sit there. Goes tuck, tuck, tuck all the time. Pelican happy. Marries duck. Start Kunai people. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Last New Wave. Uh, pretty interesting discussion there. I really enjoyed re-listening to it myself at least, so uh, that's a positive, and hopefully you enjoyed listening to it too. Um, make sure to head over and follow Ben on 
Twitter, which is down under Flicks. I'll put a link in the show notes and also head over to his website to read some of his reviews. They're really, really great. Uh, when, at the end of the episode, we talked about a great Australian film, Not Quite Hollywood, which is uh, getting a release on Umbrella Entertainment very soon. And I've actually got an interview coming up with the director of that film too as well so keep an eye out on the uh, social media and stuff like that for that particular episode and our social media is ab film review on both facebook and twitter so follow us there to keep up to date with when new episodes go up or head over to our website abfilmreview.com where you can listen to previous episodes as well as episodes of our other show and you know make sure if you want to uh, go the extra step you can also head over to patreon.com forward slash ab film review throw us a dollar here or there it just helps keep the site going if you really like this kind of stuff as well head over to followingfilms.com where you can hear other shows like the grand gesture grand gesture podcast uh, also following films podcast and a bunch of other really really great shows on there uh, so if you like listening to film discussion that's the place to go really that's about it from me keep on watching australian films And I'll see you on the next episode of The Last New Wave.